This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. We have reached the end of the college football season as we know it, and now we get into the bowl prep, college football playoff, all the good stuff around the holidays. Paul Meyerberg, we have our four teams. It is not anything surprising after what we saw Friday night from USC, that just epic disaster of defense that took away their chance to make the playoff. We are left with number one, Georgia, playing number four, Ohio State, in the Peach Bowl in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, on New Year's Eve. We have Michigan, number two, the Big Ten champions, playing TCU, who lost in overtime to Kansas State in the Big 12 title game, but did not drop, much to the chagrin of uh, Alabama Nation, because as we know, uh, Alabama would be favored by double digits over TCU. At least that's what Nick Saban told us. Nick Saban, the same guy who will absolutely bite your head off if you dare to suggest that Alabama is favored uh, by X number of points to beat the Citadel on a given week uh, and start talking about, um, you know, the time that uh, they got ran through like feces through a tin horn. If you remember that rant, that was a famous one. Um, Nick Saban does not like it if you talk about how Alabama is favored. But um, in this case, he was all over television Saturday night talking about the reason they should be in the playoff is because they would be favored against all these teams. Um, the committee didn't buy it. I didn't buy it. And I'm glad that uh, we're not doing this anymore. I think they got it right. Yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty easy. If they had put Alabama in, Dan, I don't know what I would have done. Well, I would not have been able – I could not have been held responsible for my actions if Alabama yeah. got into the field. Just want to put that out there. I don't know what I would have done. I don't know. But if they had put Alabama in, it would have been it would have been really bad. They could they were never going to put him in. And the idea that they were going to is kind of silly. And honestly, um Nick Saban takes orders from no man, but if he asked from asked for my opinion, I'd say don't like just take the day off. Don't like get put yourself out there and like say things that are kind of embarrassing and uh, and below you. Just take the loss and, and go to whatever bowl they're going to send you to. So, as predicted, if USC lost, Ohio State was in, TCU was in, win or lose, we got it 100% right, you and I, everyone else had it wrong, and uh, now we can move forward to the semis and to the game that you're going to be at, which is the best semifinal, I think, in the history of the format, and that's Georgia-Ohio State. It's the best semifinal on paper. Yeah, we don't know how good on, the game is Obviously, be. yeah. Yeah. We don't know how good the well, game is. Well, going to lose by 30, probably. Um, yeah. If they lost to Michigan by 22, I mean, it's a 30-point loss on paper. Um, but no, I, I know what you mean. On paper, it's an unbelievably great matchup. We had to wait nine years for it, but it's awesome. It is. And, you know, part of me is, I, I don't want to say disappointed that Ohio State got in because that's not exactly accurate. Um, they were the fourth best team based on all the factors. Uh, but I hated the idea that they could get in coming off a terrible performance against Michigan, not have to do anything, not have to risk anything last weekend, and just sort of sit there and watch USC's defense miss tackle after tackle, and that's their ticket to the playoff, right? I didn't like that, but it is what it is. 
Um, there was never any real conversation about Alabama. This was all fake drama. You get to a point on Saturday where everybody's watching these games and social media just starts kind of like trying to figure out if there's something more to this. And you hear all this stuff. It's amazing how much conspiracy theory drives a lot of conversation, not just in sports, but just in general. When I do think the committee, like if you look at the history of this committee, they basically, they play it by the book every time. They really do. Like there's, it is the most predictable group of people in, in the world. And it's because they have these standards laid out for them. You and I have both been through their mock selection process. You have all this data and you just sort of stack it up, right? You just one team versus another team. And it's just numbers. And you look at the numbers and you say, you know what? Uh, TCU had a better season than Alabama. Ohio State had a better season than Alabama. It's simple, right? The one thing I thought they might do is is move Ohio State up to number three. And, you know, and just say, look, Ohio State versus TCU, we think Ohio State's better. And I do think there's some reflection in that sentiment in, in the Vegas lines where Michigan is um, a nine-point favorite and George is about a six-and-a-half-point favorite last I saw over Ohio State. So there is some sentiment to that. But these people played by the book. Now, look, we're going to talk in a minute about what happens when it goes to 12 and it's going to get all kinds of weird. But um, as we sort of sunset this committee in terms of the four-team playoff, I think I can say, and we still have one more year of it, they don't really cause controversy or take a lot of chances. Like they just sort of look at the numbers and then that's what you get. Yeah. I think 2014 was like a, like a don't touch a hot plate moment for the committee. You know what I mean? Like that blowback was so profound in 2014, rightfully so maybe that uh, they backed away from, from the controversy. The college football playoff takes care of itself. Like they don't need the Tuesday night shows. They don't need the controversy. It takes care of itself. People are going to watch. So I'm glad to see that this was uncontroversial. I'm glad to see that it kind of worked out for everybody. Um, and uh, I know we'll say, I'm using my scare quotes, that they didn't think about or take into consideration the rematch with Michigan and Ohio State, uh, but they probably did. They probably did. Yeah, I mean, look, the thing about it is I wouldn't have wanted to see the rematch in the semifinals either. I don't. Not that it wouldn't have been fair, but um, you know, mm-hmm. if you're Michigan, like you just beat those guys uh, on the road, and then all of a sudden they're saying you have to do it again. It's hard to beat a team twice in one season. Really hard. Really hard. Um, so, you know this this would have been a, a year where, like, if you had the BCS, nobody would have complained. But I don't think we should complain about these matchups because I like both matchups. I like the fact that. You know, Michigan's probably going to beat TCU, but it wouldn't be the most surprising thing that's happened in the history of the playoff if TCU wins that game. And certainly if Ohio State plays their best football and is healthy, there's a path for them to beat Georgia. I don't think it's going to happen, but from a talent perspective, that is a very good matchup. It's a great matchup, but it's also a matchup. It's like the... uh... You know, when you are trying to like do a bench press and you get to your last rep and you get to that no man's land where it's either up or down and you and it's just you're in a really bad place. That's what playing Georgia is like for Ohio State. They're going to be in a very bad place the entire game. But if they have the the strength and they play their best game, they could win it. 
So it's a really intriguing matchup because I don't know if there's a lot of other teams out there, including Michigan and TCU, where you could say at their best they can win this game. Um, but also Ohio State, like you said, they got swamped by Michigan. It doesn't bode well for their chances. Uh, I got two true or false questions for you, Dan. Okay. True or false. USC loses by a point as they did in the regular season. Do they get it? Uh, I think false. I think. I think, yeah, it wasn't, I didn't really phrase that as a true or false question, but I understand what you mean. Yeah, I, I think you're well, right. I thought you said we were doing I true think, or false. Yeah, but I didn't phrase it as a true or false. Did I ask it in the sense of a true or false question? Well, I don't, like, I, I, I don't think they would have. I think they would have just missed. Right. I think they. Ca- okay, I think well, they we, had to. W- I think they had to win that game in retrospect. We saw them drop to ten, so it seems pretty likely they had to win. Okay, so here's the really good one: true or false? Michigan loses to Ohio State and gets number four in the playoff. True or false? That one, if it was close, I think true. Okay, same result: Ohio State by twenty-two points, Michigan or Alabama. That might have been Alabama. Okay. So that's how we, that's in the end, we figured out how Alabama got in at 10 and 2. It's the same layout for SC, get blown out, lose twice to Utah, and it's a Michigan blowout loss in Columbus. Right. That's it. In hindsight, that's the only way Alabama was getting in. So really, it was over after Michigan beat Ohio State. Or it was actually yeah. over when they lost well, to LSU, more, more specifically. Well, but that's right. But that's what we said last week was they had the committee had Ohio State ahead of Alabama in last week's rankings. So there was really nothing that was going to happen this past weekend to change that since since neither of them played. Um, you know, there was some talk. Well, what if, you know, what if LSU uh, beats Georgia and then that makes the Alabama loss look better? Blah, 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 blah. It, it wasn't in the cards. It wasn't in the cards. And. Yeah, I, I thought it was a little bit beneath Saban to go do that. I thought the only thing it really did was just draw attention to the fact that that the fact he had to do that kind of said everything you needed to know about about their about their argument. When your best win is when your best win is Texas, your second best win is Mississippi State, that doesn't really say a lot for for what you accomplished, you know. So um the one thing you ha- and I kept trying to tell people on social media, and there were people who were like guaranteeing that Alabama was going to be in because of, you know, Vegas or TV ratings or whatever. The committee is not a predictive process. They don't do it and say, all right, well, what if we put this team against this team? What do we think is going to happen? That's not what they do. That's not their job. And they know that their job is to evaluate the season that these teams had and look at the information on paper and say, this team had a better season than that team. Now, you can say the four best teams, and it's intentionally vague because they want it to be that way in case they need to do something to take a team out or put a team in. But you know, maybe Alabama would have gotten the benefit of the doubt if it was close, but this one just wasn't really that close. And you know, I thought there was a much more interesting conversation about three versus four, but I think they got that one right too because at the end of the day, you know, the Ohio State win against Penn State was kind of equal out by the first TCU game against Kansas State where they won at Kansas State. Um, those those two things kind of canceled themselves out. 
And then, so then you sort of look as, as best win. And then you sort of look at the losses and Ohio state had a blowout loss at home. TCU had a overtime loss, you know, by two inches on the goal line where they didn't get the ball in. So yeah, I, I think they got it right now. Let's, let's talk about the games. Um, themselves let's start friday night because i do think this is going to be really interesting going forward uh conference championship games have for the last couple years started to feel a little bit more irrelevant maybe than they than they have been and especially this year friday was extremely relevant great atmosphere in vegas looked like a great scene usc gets out early a couple touchdowns or a couple couple good drives by Caleb Williams. They get a turnover. It looks like they have a chance to put the hammer down early. He he hurts his hamstring. And then Utah's toughness gets him back in the game. They win the Pac-12. In a 12-team playoff, that win not only would have gotten Utah into the playoff, it would have gotten them a bye because they would have been the number four team, the number four seed as the fourth highest rated conference champion. How about that? All right, because Utah was eight, Kansas State nine. Yeah. Right? Okay, yeah. yeah. So Utah, incredible. Yeah, to think about what this game will mean in two years. What did you think of the USC performance? It's the kind of performance that I think we've been waiting for all season. You know, like the performance that's a total dud. You know, it's a performance that we've gotten used to at SC. I mean, under previous coaching staffs. We hadn't seen it that yet this season. But when you look back at USC's year, like they walked a tightrope, you know, this defense was cobbled together with string and tape all year long. They, they made hay on an incredible turnover margin, a, a not repeatable turnover margin. They up until Friday night, despite their issues on defense, they had never collapsed, at least from a physical or from a technique perspective like they did against Utah. But um, I saw a lot of Michigan, Ohio State in that game. USC's got individual talent-wise, just guys who are who pop off the screen. Utah, not quite as much, but Utah as a team, just much better constructed, uh, much more certain about who they want to be, much more, I think they just believe a lot more in what they are and, and who they are. So you see as the game wears on, Utah, uh, like Michigan, starts to smell and sniff some weakness, and they just put the hammer down. So I think it's okay for SC. My my, It's, it's still a good year for SC, and I remember talking uh, – like a USC fan had emailed me last week to complain about the game on, on Saturday morning. It's a good year, but I understand the complaint, Dan, because you may not get another shot like this. Things are about to get a whole lot more difficult very soon for SC, you know, and you may not have another shot under Lincoln Riley where you get into the conference championship game and can guarantee your spot at 12 and one. It's just not guaranteed. So it feels like a tremendous missed opportunity in the broader sense, even though I don't think anyone is surprised that they got demolished the way they did. I look at that game and I, I have a lot of questions about Alex Grinch, the defensive coordinator, because I, I certainly understand the argument. USC's defense was really bad last year and they inherited a bunch of players who just aren't good enough to run a championship level defense. I get that. And I think that's a fair point, but we've seen this before from Lincoln Riley's teams. We saw it repeatedly at Oklahoma and, you know, Alex Grinch is kind of his, his sidekick as defensive coordinator for the last several years. 
And I think, you know, I think some programs have figured this out, but if you, you know, remember back, you know, eight, nine years ago when the spread offense really started to take over college football, you had a lot of people saying the problem with the spread is that you're practicing every day against the spread and you're not getting used to playing, you know, physical football in tight windows, you know, in in tight spaces. And you just, you don't have that force. Now there are some programs that have figured out a better balance of that, but I don't think Lincoln Riley has, you know, what are they going to, what are they going to be able to do here to practice with more physicality to get stronger in the weight room? I mean, if I'm their strength and conditioning coach, I'm embarrassed about that. They just got big boyed by Utah and Utah's a program that, you know, is going to be physically tough. You know, they're going to, you know, they're, you know, they're in the weight room, you know, and, and, uh, USC looked like a team that had been doing P90X workouts all week. <laughs> um, yeah, I think what, when you look back at their off season, this past off season, you saw them attack the portal in a major way on offense and, and not so much on defense. So they got to find more balance on this roster. And, and honestly, I don't, I don't think just going in the portal and finding two edge rushers and a cornerback is really going to do it. I think it's going to take more than that. So this Lincoln-Riley trend towards dominance of the weaker teams in the league, I mean, did it at OU, did it this year at SC, but then, you know, kind of a flop in a matchup against a team of a similar ilk or a team that's built in a, in a way that could take advantage of USC's weakness. Yeah, it's becoming a bit of a trend, for sure, over the course of years for Lincoln-Riley. I give him a pass, but if they don't make big strides on defense next year, you have to think that at the very least that, he's going to sever this relationship with Alex Grinch because it's the defense. Even immediately you can tell that it'll always be the defense as at Oklahoma that limits USC, what they can do under Lincoln Riley. All right. So that was Friday night. Uh, Pac 12 still has not been in the playoffs since 2016. I believe when uh, Washington made it, it's a long drought, not, not great news for the Pac 12. You go to Saturday early noon, Kansas state 31 TCU 28 overtime. I thought it was a really good football game. I think the nation got to see why a lot of football people respect Kansas State so much. There's people, a lot of people in the Big 12 will tell you that's the best coached football team in the league. And Chris Kleiman's just done an incredible job. But man, TCU, like even in, in some weird way, I actually think TCU gained even more respect in the way that they came back and got it to overtime and almost won the game than maybe in some of their wins earlier this year. Yeah. Um, when they met back in October, Kansas State had them down 28-10, and TCU came back. Again, Saturday, similar story. I think the, the Kansas State storyline to me coming out of that game, the Big 12 is going to change a lot in the next 24 months. If I had to put a guess – on Kleiman being there for another eight seasons, they win at least two more Big 12 championships as long as he's there. At least two more in the next eight years. Three, I mean, they're not going to be Oklahoma dominant, but they're going to win multiple Big 12 championships. Um, did Max Duggan win the Heisman to you? Well, that's an I mean, interesting that's conversation. That drive to me was, that that's his Heisman moment. Even in a loss, I think he had a number of Heisman moments in that game. 
I don't think he's going to end up winning it necessarily. I still think I think Caleb Williams's position was strong enough going into that Pac-12 game. And again, I'm not a voter. I don't know when the majority of the voters sent their ballots in. I think probably over the last few years, it's it's gotten more fashionable to send it in today, essentially after all the games have been played the very last minute. But um, he certainly showed himself to be just a super tough customer. I mean, that 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 drive at the end to tie the game where he just he just kept running the ball. It just to me, it was it was like it was like watching Kobe Bryant down the stretch of of an NBA playoff game. You know, it's just like. I'm this is I am going to do this win or lose. This is going to be on me. Get out of the way. I've got the ball here and I'm going to determine what happens. And he just he just made stuff happen and he you know, before that two-point conversion that tied it up, I mean, he was so physically exhausted. Like I was afraid he might pass out. Um and of course he was he was bleeding from about 15 different places. It was just a, it was an amazing performance. It was great television. Yeah, he was rocky round 15 against Apollo in that game. I mean, just completely two swollen eyes, like a couple busted ribs, bleeding, like you said, from five different spots. Um, I think that he's going to – yeah, I I don't even know if he should win it. You know, I still think Caleb Williams has been pretty fantastic. But I think it's going to be hard for people to watch that game and not come out being like, oh, I'm a Max Duggan dude now. Um, going forward against Michigan, he needs to get to the ice bath and get in that whirlpool action, like go into a icy hot MRI tube and just get slathered in it um, because he's going to take a, a whipping against Michigan. He's going to have to do the same thing to help them win that game. But yeah, it, in terms of the broader idea about TCU impressing people more, I, I think a lot of people probably didn't watch TCU that much this year, to be right, quite honest. Right. I think that's true. Yeah, I think a lot of people didn't. So watching them on Saturday, I have no doubt in my mind that people who are unfamiliar with TCU were struck by how tough they are. Not just mentally tough. We knew that because they won eight games by a possession or by 10 points or less, but just physically how tough they were. So I think they they earned a lot of respect in that game. And I think one team that will respect their toughness is obviously Michigan because TCU's got more underneath the hood than you might think. Yeah, I think uh, a great point was made by our friend Pat Forty at Sports Illustrated when he wrote that you know, TCU was is the most unlikely team that's ever made the playoff, even more so than Cincinnati last year, which is a team that started in the top 10 in the preseason. And you looked at them and, and thought they had playoff potential given the schedule and all that stuff. TCU was nowhere. I mean, they fired Gary Patterson last year, bring in Sonny Dykes, who everybody who knows the game thought was a really good coach, but nobody would have looked at that team or schedule in the preseason and said, yeah, they could make the playoff. I mean, but they just week after week found ways to win. And I don't know if you want to call that a fluke or what, what how you want to characterize it, but at the end of the day, it happened. And here they are, and I think it's an awesome story. Yeah, I mean, the same year you got a team that was picked to finish like seventh in the Big 12 win the league, make the playoff. And their quarterback, who wasn't even the starter for week one, could win the Heisman. I don't – I'm sure – or I'm not sure, but there might be some guy that I'm just forgetting about, at least like in the era where we kept these stats. But there has never been a Heisman winner who didn't start the season opener, right? I mean, like there was no guy who was a backup 
in August or September who then won the Heisman. Am I missing somebody? Like just well, airballing somebody? Uh, well, Jameis Winston was, you know, I, I don't, I don't remember if he was like definitively the starter for Florida State when they opened that season. I think he was. He was. But, yeah, I know what you mean. He could have shared some snaps, but he was well, definitely Man- the starter for that game. Actually, Man- Manziel did not start the opener. I don't believe. Pretty sure Manziel did not start the opener for for Texas A and M. But anyway, the the point is the point is correct. You know, this is this is a unique type of story. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, so they'll lose to Michigan, but it's been a it's been a, an amazing ride for TCU. Very memorable. All right. So uh, when that game ended, you had a couple games going on at the same time. I will be honest with you. I had my eyes focused a lot more on the AAC championship game than the SEC. Yeah. I thought it was a remarkable scene down in New Orleans. Unbelievable crowd. And how about Tulane? Willie Fritz. From two and ten last year to the Cotton Bowl, turns down, walks away from the Georgia Tech job last week <laughs> to coach this team in this game. It was that important to him in the program. And they beat UCF 45-28, and they're going to be playing USC in the Cotton Bowl. I mean, you want to talk about it just another great story. I am so happy for the folks at Tulane. Yeah, that's incredible for what they've been through in the last 20 years or so just an, an incredible year for them and incredible for willie fritz this is like this is like there are a couple guys on the college level on the on the fbs level who have been coaching as a head coach for 25 years um and never been on the power five willie fritz chris creighton these kind of guys are coaching lifers who have won every single step of the way and i think it's great to see is nothing to do with him not taking the Georgia Tech job. I just think it's great to see a someone like Fritz, who has operated off the fringes for ninety percent of his career, um, just have this moment and get this sort of recognition. Because if they win one more game, he's responsible for the greatest single season turnaround in terms of wins in college football history, which is remarkable. I mean, they're going to be hard pressed to beat USC, but I, I really think they could. Um, based off the way they played this year and the way they're playing as of late. I think it's not quite a toss-up game, but Tulane's got a shot. And if they win that game, it's just remarkable. Remarkable for Fritz and for the Greenwood. Georgia beat LSU 50-30, to and, you know, it never really seemed like LSU had much of a chance. I mean, the the stat that's going to reverberate over the next few weeks is that Georgia gave up 502 passing yards to LSU. <laughs> In this game, yeah. um, you know, some of it is Georgia had a big lead and LSU's throwing the ball every possession. And and also they they couldn't run it at all, so they're just throwing it down the field. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I do think if there's a weakness for Georgia, it is it is that. You know, it is it is that the back end of their defense. And if you're Ohio State, if you're Ryan Day, you're clinging on to anything. Mm-hmm. It's that. It's hey, listen, yeah. I mean, we we are equipped better than any other team in the country to challenge that weakness of Georgia's. Now the game's going to be in Atlanta. That's obviously a big advantage for Georgia Uh, in the same building. You know, they played there twice already this year. So I I expect Georgia to win the game. And I also expect Kirby smart to spend the next three weeks um, fixing some of the things that were wrong 
with that defensive effort. And and that's a huge thing going into the playoff we've seen before. It really advantages the best coach teams that time. And I think Georgia is better coached than Ohio State. And I think that will be a huge difference. Yeah, and, and, and after a while, and we've seen this with a couple of guys who have been here multiple times, you just get a rhythm for this thing. And you know exactly how to spend these 28 days. It's just almost to the point where Kirby Smart could go back to last season or 2018 or whatever and just kind of look at that. How did we prepare for this game? What do we need to do? And it'll just follow a script. So there's great advantage in that. Not that Ohio State hasn't been there recently as well. Um, that 502 yard stand did not feel like 502 yards. Um, like if you're watching the game, you look up, you're like, wow, okay, 502 yards. So it didn't feel like to me that LSU was like, oh, oh my gosh, they have cracked the code of how to score against Georgia's defense. It did not feel that way to me at all. So that's a one-off. Um, Ohio State will put up yards, but I don't, I'm not as concerned about Georgia's pass defense just flopping in this game. We'll talk more about all these games, all both of these yeah. games and the New Year's Six later this month, but just off on, on face value, I'm not I'm not losing sleep over them giving up a bunch of yards to you know LSU's backup QB. It doesn't doesn't phase me at all. That's fair. Um, the evening games were not all that interesting. You know, Purdue gave it a run for a little while against Michigan, but Michigan Michigan had control of that thing the whole way, 43-22. Um, you know, I think the nice thing for Michigan is now that we know. Blake Corum is not going to come back this year. He's got that knee injury, so he's getting that taken care of. They're going to be giving the ball to Donovan Edwards, and he had 25 carries against Purdue, 185 yards. You know, it's it's obviously ideal if you have both guys available, but, I mean, he's a star-level player, and it's a nice, it's a nice thing to have a quote-unquote backup who is like a legitimate NFL guy. Yeah. Um, do you think uh, Jeff Brown was saving those touchdown plays for Louisville? Well, um, we'll and talk just want to get his field second. goals out of his yeah. system. We'll get that. We'll get um, to that in a second. I don't understand time, what that was all about. <laughs> every time uh, Donovan Edwards carries the ball, I just assume he's going to fumble. I've got like permanent cringe when he has it. It's just because he's got to keep it in his left hand. It, it just makes me nervous. Not that I care, but it just makes me nervous. It, it just makes me nervous. Um, yeah, uh, Michigan is going to give Edwards the ball 25, 30 times. And if history is any indication, like on carry 26 to 30, he's going to score a 65-yard touchdown. That's just what he's about. He's a home run dude. So a little bit different. But I think in a way, if they had Coram, they would not complain. But in a way, that element of explosiveness is, is really intriguing. And it really adds a nice dimension to this offense. Um, what did you think about J.J. McCarthy? I mean, after he was incredible against Ohio State. I thought he was fine. Back to being who he is. Like, don't let him throw the ball more than 20 times. I think that's the recipe. They didn't really need to do anything in the passing game, or not mm -hmm. that much. You know, he was 11 for 17, 161 yards. He made a, he made a couple plays that were really good plays. I mean, you, yeah. get, him, you get him rolling around or, you know, spinning away from pressure and throwing the ball. He, he does some stuff that's really impressive. But I don't think this game was that much of a that much of a test. You know what I mean? It's like the pressure to me. I think we learned more about him in the Ohio State game because that's when he had to be great for them to win, and he was. Mm -hmm. 
Can he yeah, be great against TCU? Good. You know, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I don't, I don't think Michigan wants to get into that game again. You know, where it's like, you know, QB versus QB. But I feel better about him than I did after Illinois, obviously. And I think, yeah, he had a couple of throws. Uh, I think two of them touchdown throws that were really solid, really solid. So keep the attempts down, but also don't be afraid to let him improvise and do that stuff. So I thought he played well. I feel good about him going into this game. I do. I feel good about the offense overall. And then the last big championship game that was Saturday was the ACC. Clemson beats North Carolina 39-10, which the only reason it's worth talking about is because Dabo Sweeney, who stuck with DJ Uyunglele all season long and snapped at reporters when they asked about quarterback changes. Even last week, basically, like, he just wasn't having it. You know, wouldn't have it. They go three and out on their first two possessions. North Carolina's up 7 nothing. DJ gets pulled for Cade Klubnick, finally. And Klubnick goes 20 of 24, 279 yards, player of the game. Clemson rolls. Yeah. And DJ is in the transfer portal last night. Um, I think we can say, had Dabo Sweeney done this five games ago, Clemson is in the college football playoff. I think that's fair. Two games ago, he just does it against South Carolina. I want to, like, I want to be Team Dabo. I do, in, in a way. Like, I want to be on Team Dabo when he says things like, you know, we went 11 and 2. We won the ACC. We had a great year. We made some mistakes, but we're heading down to South Beach and we're excited. I think that viewpoint is refreshing. You know, it's easy to be excited when you win the ACC, but to take a step back and be like, we still had a great year and they did have a great year. They won the ACC. They're going to the Orange Bowl. I want to be on Team Davo for that mindset. And I am on his team for that. But look, like, he botched this. Yeah. He messed this one up. He messed it up. He should have done better. And he's got to own it. If he had made this switch 13 days ago, Clemson's in the playoff because they're 12 and 1 and they get in over Ohio State. So he's got to own this because he did not, he didn't do this right. He didn't do his team right on this decision. I think he let them down. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you could say this one was more obvious and easier than even when he had to replace Kelly Bryant with Trevor Lawrence. Like, Kelly Bryant wasn't playing bad, necessarily. They just weren't at the level they needed to be at. But it wasn't like Kelly Bryant was 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 playing poor week in and week out. I mean, DJ really struggled. Not just this year, but last year, too. And at some point, the loyalty stuff is, is very admirable, but uh, you also have to be loyal to the other 100 guys on your football team. And we, everybody likes DJ seems like a super good kid. And, you know, he might be the emotional leader of, of that team. And maybe that's what they every day in practice and stuff, but you do have to respect the results and the way you play. And, and yeah, they had given club Nick some drives and snaps in various games, but it's not like he had had good situations to kind of walk into. And, um, I just feel like, I just feel like if you had made the move and you had given him a little time to get his feet under him, I think Clemson would be in the in the playoff now. I'm not saying they would be able to win it or anything like that because I just don't think like I don't think they would beat Georgia 
in any way, shape, or form. But um, I do think it was a miss from Sweeney, and you know we'll see what happens uh, going forward. I mean, DJ, you'd think he'll have some suitors in the Pac-12 or you know maybe the Mountain West, but um, yeah, just 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 didn't live up to expectations. And guess what? That happens sometimes. No, absolutely. And I think in a sense, the worst thing that happened to him was Notre Dame as a true freshman, the way that he played in that loss, just a historic performance. I think it raised expectations so high. And then the personnel changed and he didn't have the dudes that Trevor Lawrence played with. And and, and it wasn't really a fair comparison. I don't know what his, like where he should play, like what level he should play on. I like the idea of him going to UCLA and being a hammer in Chip Kelly's system, you know, and making him a focus point of a really physical running game that is run first and then don't force DJ to win games with his arms. I don't like the idea of him like going to Oklahoma, for instance, where it's like a little bit more about like you're winning this game, like you're the centerpiece of everything. That worries me. If it's going to be, if he's going to play in a scheme that asks him to be a passer more than a runner like it was at Clemson I don't I don't like it for him so I want him to go somewhere that he can have a successful final year because I think he's a good kid I think he wasn't a great circumstance in terms of the surrounding talent I think emotionally this year probably dragged on him quite a bit so I wish the best success for him his career is not going to go the way that we thought or the way that he obviously thought two or three years ago all right, so that's uh, everything that happened last weekend. Let's talk about coaching carousel because in some ways this was even bigger than most of the games that happened over the weekend. Deion Sanders to Colorado is now a thing, and they're off and running. And Saturday night, Dion wins his final game at Jackson State, although he's still got the Celebration Bowl that he's supposedly going to coach in. Gets on a plane, lands in Boulder, Colorado. The announcement gets made. Has the team meeting basically told all those losers to get out um, <laughs> in, so, in, in not so many words. Uh, he's, he's The Calvary's coming. And, I mean, this is, uh, this is one that's shaking everything up. I mean, I don't yeah. know how it's going to go. I mean, there's all – the range of possibilities of how this is going to go is, is endless. It, it may be a smashing success. It may be a failure. It may be he's goes eight and five a few times and people stop paying attention. But for right now, like he's going to get players. He's going to get transfers. He's going to get recruits. The whole face of Colorado is going to do a 180 in the next three months. So what do you think of the fit? And, uh, I mean, I guess, I guess he's off to an interesting start. I mean, he's he already named his son the next starting quarterback, and his son is apparently <laughs> going to be has still has one more game to play at Jackson State. Yeah, um, I think we can say no matter what, it's not going to last that long. You know what I mean? Like either he is killing it, and he's the next head coach at somewhere else, or he's fired. Um, you can say that about everybody, but I think this yeah. one's going to be on a faster timeline than that. I have to admit, Dan. I didn't watch the video. I read like some quotes from his introductory video that he was talking to the Buffaloes and he was like, I'm bringing some luggage with me. And, and, uh, it's, it's like called Louie. Louie. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I read this at first and I thought for a good amount of time, 
that he had named his luggage Lewis. And I was like, what? Like you ha- you your luggage has a name named Lewis? Like who's gonna understand this reference? I get it now. He's now saying the dudes I'm bringing with me from Jackson State, the dudes I'm gonna bring in, uh, they're like $500 suitcases. You're the Samsonite that I used when I was in college. Pretty obvious that there was gonna be, sorry, ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous roster turnover for Colorado very fast. And that's what's most interesting to me is like, what is this roster going to look like on May 1st when he gets through of the transfer portal, runs his guys off, brings in his transfers from Jackson State? I mean, conceivably, he's going to build the poster child year one program for the transfer portal and what the benefits can be because they're a one-win team, but I think he can get the talent together where they could go six and six, seven and five in the Pac-12. I mean, he has the money. He has the opportunity, and he's got the roster spots. I mean, and he's Dion. Why wouldn't he be able to do that right away? I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, this is the interesting part about where college football is now, that you can turn over a roster really fast. You can upgrade areas of weakness really fast. You don't need five years. And I don't think I don't think Dion would do it if he thought it was going to take three, four, five years. He wants to be good now and yeah maybe there's a limit on how good they can be in year one but like i think we're gonna have a pretty good idea right away of how effective he's gonna be at this level and i don't really have anything to say other than it's it's a fascinating fit you know i'm old enough to remember when colorado was among the best programs in the country you know the 1990s 1980s really all the way up to about Mm -hmm. 2000 I, i think it was 2000 when they lost a game to Nebraska that would have determined who played in the BCS championship game. I think I have that right. Do you remember that? Well, in 01, they, in 01, they beat them by a million, but still didn't That's get right. in the game. That's right. That's what it But was. nonetheless, like up through, they're winning Big 12 North titles through 04, 05 under Gary Barnett. And then under Hawkins, things have kind of turned around. Like the history of Colorado football um, like for our childhood and, and for most people's childhood um, is that this is one of the top teams in the country and that they can be that again. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I just, I, I, I think Dion's great for Colorado. I also think Dion's great for college football. Uh, I don't love the, like telling some poor kid from Pueblo, California, high school, uh, Pueblo, Colorado high school that like you suck and you need to go away, pack your bags. I don't love that. I think that he's a little, that needs to be sanded down a little bit, but to have someone with his energy, his name recognition, his reputation, uh, to, you know, the fact that he's a coach of color and the power five is great for college football. I just think Dion in general is great, great, great for college football. Even if he implodes the, the news value and the intrigue alone makes him great for college football. I, I really don't have a problem with it whatsoever. I, I, I am curious like what the coaching fraternity thinks of Dion getting this job because he's only three years into his career, but I think it's fantastic. I really love it. I think it's good for the sport, good for the Pac-12, good for Colorado. All right, so just to put a bow on what I had mentioned earlier, I had sort of misremembered this. I, I should have looked it up before we started the, the podcast. But So in 2001, Colorado – they beat Nebraska in the last game of the regular season, 62 to 36. 
and they were to go to 11 and one and I'm sorry, 10 and two, 10 and two. And Nebraska was ranked number two at the time that got Colorado into the big 12 championship game where they beat Texas 39, 37, Texas was number three. So, so Colorado would beat number two and number three in consecutive weeks, but they got left out of the BCS for Nebraska. Nebraska ended right. up getting that number two spot because that was Nebraska's only loss, even though it was a, you know, even though it was a thirty, you know, twenty six point loss to to Colorado. That's what it was. So right. Just, I remember uh, that season. Yeah. Like I remember twenty. I remember two thousand one. Yeah. Better than I remember 2021. Why is that? <laughs> Probably lots of reasons. But uh and, and Nebraska lost to Miami in that in that championship game 37-14. So Colorado actually may have um may have been the better choice there, but uh, that was a long time ago. And really that was the last time anybody cared about Colorado football because it, it fell apart quickly after that. So I don't know if Dion could get back to that level, but uh it's not gonna be boring. Let's say let's say that. No. It will not be. All all right. Another pretty interesting coaching carousel move uh, came actually Monday morning. Scott Satterfield is leaving Louisville, going to Cincinnati to replace Luke Fickle. And the crazy part of this is Louisville and Cincinnati are playing in what what is called the Wasabi Bowl, which is um, (laughs) which is which is at Fenway Park. It's it's the Fenway Bowl in in Boston. Um, I mean, I've never. I can't remember any scenario where a coach has left before a bowl game for the team that they're playing in a bowl. I, I've never, never seen that before. You ever had real wasabi, Dan? Like at the table, they bring the little wasabi out. The, the, the wasabi root? No, but I've heard it's. Root. I've heard it's uh, different. It's different. I'm fancy. I've had that. Um, yeah, this is that bowl game is going to be awkward. He should just stay. Just stay far home. away, I mean, far away. Just yeah. stay home. What do you think? Like, we were talking about this with with Eric Smith and Eddie Tamanis. I was earlier this morning about that har about that hire, and I just don't. I don't like it. I wouldn't say I hate it. I don't like it at all. But if I was going to find something to like about it, maybe Cincinnati has found a guy who isn't going to, you know, turn this into a power five job. He's been in the power five. Maybe his power five days are over and they have more of a permanent solution. Fickle was there for a long time, but this is a dude where they're like, okay, he's going to hang around. Well, that's pretty much the only thing I can say about it. That's good. You have have to remember Cincinnati's going to the big 12. So it is about to be a power five job. Um, It's not a, it's not a stepping stone job. In other words, is what I mean. Like they're not going to look at this job and be like, Oh, I can translate this into something. That's it. That's all I can say. Well, fun fact, and and it's a different administration now, but Satterfield was actually very, very much in the mix when Cincinnati hired Luke Fickle. I mean, he was like Hmm. one of the last few people on, you know, basically if Fickle had said no to Cincinnati, Satterfield might have gotten the job then. Um, Mm -hmm. I think Satterfield's a good coach. I think at Louisville it was just an uncomfortable marriage for a lot of reasons. He got a reputation early for having a wandering eye. And I think he got sick of Louisville people pining for Jeff Brom. <laughs> which I totally understand by the way. I mean that that would piss me off if I were in that position. Um 
there was a point earlier this year where it looked like he was actually going to get fired at Louisville. Like they were one more loss. Like I think they lost to Boston College, if I'm not mistaken, Louisville. Yeah. Uh, like if they had lost the next game, I think he would have been out right then. But they actually kind of rallied and turned it around a little bit toward the end of the season, played okay. Mm-hmm. And I think Louisville was reticent to like add years to his contract and give him security. So he started looking around. And I actually think this is one of those win-wins for everybody. Louisville gets a guy who is, you know, a proven commodity as they go into this Big 12 upgrade. Louisville gets rid of a guy who, you know, they never really embraced. And now they get, you know, whatever it's three million bucks or whatever the buyout is. And they can go try to get Jeff Brom, who they always wanted anyway. And there are people who think now this is this is the time Brom will take it. Yeah. Open up those checkbooks and just start with six zeros and then ask Jeff Brom what is the number that goes in front of these six zeros that makes you that will help you take this job. I don't really think this is that complicated, Dan. Like, if they don't get Jeff Brom right now, I don't even know what the reaction of that fan base is going to be. It's Jeff Brom or Buzz. Oh, they'll, they'll, be, they'll be upset. Yeah. So they won't have a choice. This is this might – I mean, outside of, like, Nick Saban hitting the open market or Dabo hitting the open market, I don't know if we've seen a coach, an individual coach with this kind of bargaining power. Like, Jeff Brom can, to an extent, name his price to Louisville right now to make this happen. And Louisville has no choice. They, they cannot – they can't not hire him. Hey, true or false? Louisville cannot not hire Jeff Brown. No, it's. I think it's true. I think they have to yeah. get this done. We'll see how that goes. Um, I would have in his contract fourth down inside the twenty in less than three. You must. You must go for it. You may not. You may not kick field goals. That's the only thing that I would say to Jeff Brown. He's a really good football coach. I'm, I'm like, we're finding like nitpicks because they, they didn't beat Michigan in the Big Ten championship game. He's a really good coach. I think he's maximized what he can do at Purdue. For Purdue to win the Big Ten West, they have to get lucky because they have to get, you know, tiebreakers as they did this year. They're always going to be an underdog in the Big Ten championship game. It's going to be so hard to get to the Rose Bowl because they're an 8-4 and four team, you know, or a 9-3 and three team going into the Big Ten championship. So, he did a nice job there, but it's time. It's time to go home. This is his chance, no doubt. This is just going to come together somehow, some way. All right, so we'll see what happens there. If he does, we'll we'll maybe have something to talk about in the future about Purdue. But uh, for right now, he's still the coach there. Uh, Jamie Chadwell has uh, gone from Coastal Carolina to Liberty, taking a lot of money, $4 million reportedly, to um, leave Honestly, a better program. Coastal Carolina is a better program in a better conference. The Sunbelts, yeah, at this point, a step above Conference USA. But Liberty has a lot of money. As I pointed out last night on Twitter, a lot of people got mad at me, but this is just—it's just plainly true. Liberty sort of pioneered the online degree thing, <laughs> and um, they made a whole lot of money. And that money has been used to supplement sports and to hire coaches and build facilities that schools outside the Power Five really can't afford. I mean, mm-hmm. to pay the football coach at Liberty $4 million a year is it's kind of ridiculous. That's not market value for a Conference USA program. 
Um, but Chadwell just, it didn't seem like he was getting a lot of traction with power fives. So he, he took the money. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Hey, look, uh, for a group of five coaches in particular, Dan, I think, as you know, it's like one thing to be really successful on that level. But even when you're really successful on that level, when you get into a setting where you're speaking to the people who are making hiring decisions at the power five, if you can't properly express and pass along like your vision or why you've been successful, like no one's just going to take that at face value and say, oh, well, you went 36 and 11 at Coastal or wherever. You know how to coach. Here are the keys to this multi, multi, multi-million dollar enterprise. So I think you need to be able to get into that room and do a great job of selling yourself and, and interviewing well. And maybe some guys just don't do a great job of that. And maybe Chadwell's one of those guys, uh, maybe like a Bill Clark, where you get to that spot, but you can't seal yeah. the deal. So if that's the case, I think Liberty is a fantastic landing spot for him, even if, as you say, Sunbelt's better than Conference USA and ergo Coastal Carolina is better than, than Liberty. But money, money talks, and if you can't get Power 5, Liberty's, from a financial perspective, the next best thing. South Florida hired Alex Golish, the uh, offensive coordinator at Tennessee, 38 years old. Don't have a lot of uh, takes on that other than, nope. you know, we'll see. Yeah. Um, good luck. The most tepid take. Yeah, I, I don't have any clue how this is going to go. Best of luck to you, Alex. Uh, so that's that's kind of where the coaching carousel is. It's kind of coming to an end, really. I mean, it used to be this week was when all the action would take place, but it just has gotten so early now that that we're kind of we're really kind of at the end of it. Um, the the other big thing that happened Monday is the transfer portal opened. Uh, the window of of time where players could could get into the portal is now going to be the Monday after the championship games. So mm-hmm. you're just seeing a rush of players and and some some pretty big names. I mean, so uh, you know, Boston College quarterback Phil Jerkovich is going to Pitt, and so Keaton Slovis is leaving Pitt and going somewhere else. Right. Um, Devin Leary, NC State is in the portal. Maybe a bit of a surprise. I don't know. I, I mean, I hadn't followed it that closely, like the dynamics at NC State, but. I mean, just given the success he had there, I was a little surprised by that name. Yeah, the kid who, who stepped in from Morris played so well down the way that I'm not sure if there's writing on the wall, but it would have been a, a, a dogfight to reclaim that job. He got injured late. Maybe a fresh start's good for him. I don't think NC State wanted to lose Leary, but I think they recognize that this is his best move. Good fit for a program that just needs a caretaker QB who has you know shown one healthy that he can complete passes at a high clip and avoid turnovers. So there are a lot of power five schools and certainly a number of group of five, strong group of five schools who would look at Devin Leary and see a good fit. Yeah. Another uh, interesting name that uh, went in the portal is uh, Vanderbilt quarterback, Mike Wright. Uh, Somebody, I think he'll get a lot of attention. It's just, we're going to have this every year. There's just going to be a quarterback carousel, especially, I mean, there's all kinds of players who are going to be in the portal, but the quarterback thing is just going to be, you know, keep your head on a swivel to try to figure out where everybody's going. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see the math at the end of it, but just based off the guys who have left so far, like maybe a third of all Power 5 teams will start a transfer QB. And that might be selling it short. I mean, maybe, maybe more than that. But you're looking at 
a lot of game, a lot of musical chairs here, and very few teams, even elite teams, that are sitting there thinking, okay, we know who our QB is going to be next year. I think like well over fifty percent of teams couldn't say with certainty right now who their QB would be for the twenty three opener. And then uh, finally, Anthony Richardson from Florida is entering the NFL draft. Just uh, announced right before we got on here, which is it's it's interesting because like he didn't have a very good year passing mm-hmm. the ball. He's not ready to be an NFL quarterback at all, but he is a guy because of his physical tools and flashes would have a chance to get picked in the first three rounds, maybe even first round. I mean, you don't, you know, I can't imagine being an NFL team spending a first round pick on a guy who's that much of a project, but it's, it's possible. And uh, it's one of those situations where if, you know, maybe you just go and get, a contract and get your money before they figure out you can't play, you know, because if he came back to Florida for another year, then, you know, maybe the NFL figures out, okay, he's not progressing. He's not developing. And so he's not really that, that draftable. I I don't know. What do you think? No, I completely agree. I think having more film is a bad thing for Anthony, Anthony, Anthony Richardson at this point, like, it's a it's not bad timing to leap into the draft, even if there are major question marks, major concerns about everything from mechanics to ability to, you know, read an NFL defense. But physically, he's all there. Then you could tap into that. You will get something special. I just, I wouldn't draft him early. I think there's too much work to be done there. But it's if he waits another year, I think teams might say he's not salvageable. So good timing for him to hit the road. And maybe good timing for Florida as well. That maybe they could use a, a change at QB. All right, so that's where we're going to wrap it up for this week. I uh, don't have an exact date on when we're going to drop our next podcast. Uh, it's obviously December. There's a lot going on, uh, but there will be a podcast between now and the uh, New Year's Six game starting. So for now, I'll just say thanks for listening to the College Football Fix. Um, uh, find more of our content on usatoday.com and the USA Today Sports Play app. Thank you very much to producer Emily. Thanks to Eric Smith, our college sports editor at USA Today. Thanks to uh, Paul Meyerberg. I'm Dan Walken. I hope everybody has a great holiday season. Hope you uh, enjoyed the podcast as we went through this year. We will talk to you soon. Hang in there. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Whatever you celebrate. Enjoy the rest of the month. The College Football Fix Podcast. (laughs) 